0: Uh, Reading tonight's from Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10, uh, finishing sort of midway through verse 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. This is God's word.
1: If you keep Ephesians 6 open, uh, we'll get right into that in a second. Let's pray, and we'll get right going. Our Father God, we ask for your help tonight. We pray that you would enable us not to be distracted or tempted to doubt. We pray instead that you would enable us to hear your words and to receive them as they are life and truth. Amen. Imagine a job advert that um, read, join us. Join us for unparalleled physical fitness, camaraderie, opportunities for foreign travel, adventure guaranteed, free food, free accommodation. We'll even throw in a uniform. Oh, Sounds wonderful. Competitive salary. Absol- Where do I sign up? It would be slightly odd if the army were to advertise in such a way without telling you, oh, by the way, you'll probably be sent to war where people will shoot at you and you'll be required to shoot back at them. It's kind of fundamental to, to tell you that if you're applying to join the army. How would you describe the Christian life to somebody who is thinking of becoming a Christian, somebody who's come along perhaps to the guest events this week? Oh, it's a spiritual journey where you, you learn about the truth of God Yeah, there's some truth in that. It's a relationship. Jesus pictures it as like marriage. Yeah, there's truth in that. It's a celebration. It is just victory and joy and delight when you follow the risen Jesus Christ. There's some truth in that as well. Well, how about it's mayhem, deafening explosions, blood-curdling screams, hideous wounds, crackling gunfire. It's it's horrific. Think the psalm. That's what the Christian life is like. Doesn't sound so attractive at that moment, does it? But although the Christian life is many things according to the Bible, one of the fundamental things we're told that the Christian life is, that Paul emphasizes here in Ephesians 6, is that it is a battle. To be a Christian is to be at war. From the 1330s to the 1450s, England and France fought the 100 Years' War. They weren't very good at maths back then, but um, it lasted at least 100 years. So, you know, given 100 years that war lasted. The war that Paul is writing about in Ephesians 6 has been going since pretty much the first day that humans existed on this earth. It began in the Garden of Eden and it won't end until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, whether you like it or not, you've picked a side, you are involved, you've been enlisted. This is a war of good versus evil, of God versus the devil, and it's a fight to the death. Now, it is not a physical fight No responsible Christian has ever read Ephesians 6 and taken the idea, drawn the conclusion, okay, so if people oppose the work of God, we should fight them physically. No responsible Christian, no mainline Christian has ever taught that from here. It's a spiritual battle. But if we are expecting a life of peace and joy and ease when we follow the risen Lord Jesus Christ, then when the battle does come, we're gonna really struggle. We're very unlikely to stand, to endure, to be brave, if we were expecting to be on a cruise ship, not a battleship. And so these are very important words for us. If you plan on staying firm to the end, not just making a good start as a follower of Jesus, but keeping going right the way through, then these are words you need to understand. Okay, just two points for us tonight. Be strong in the Lord, we have a deadly enemy. Stand firm in his armor, he's won the victory. Let's learn how to be prepared. The first thing we're told is to be strong in the Lord because we have a deadly enemy. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Paul's command is that for all followers of Jesus in all places at all times in history, Prepare to fight. Armour up. That's what Paul says to us. The answer as to why we need to do so appears immediately in the second half of verse 11. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms." we have an enemy. Now, I'm not sure that many of us here would probably be able to say we have enemies in our lives. Sure, you probably have family members who frustrate you, people who take advantage of you, people who are dishonest or make life difficult for you. But an enemy? Someone who is their their life's goal is to destroy you and they won't be happy until you and your life is utterly ruined i guess very few of us would be able to say that we we have that in our lives if you follow jesus you do have an enemy like that the devil C.S. Lewis wisely observed in the Screwtape Letters, famous words, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Okay, so what does Paul tell us here? Uh, what do we need to know? Well, firstly, verse 11, interestingly, our enemy has a name, the devil. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that he is Personal. That behind all the evil and the wickedness and the suffering we see in this world, there is a personal force, an implacable enemy who hates people like you. Elsewhere in the Bible, he's, uh, he's given different names. Here he is the devil. And we're told that he leads uh, all manner of spiritual forces. We're not told exactly what they represent, but they're rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other places, uh, the, the devil is called Satan, that is the accuser, the one who says, This one's a sinner, you cannot possibly allow this one into heaven. Zechariah 3. Uh, in Revelation 9 11, it's called Apollyon, the destroyer, one who wants to ruin and break and wreck and kill, the father of lies and the murderer in John 8. The Bible tells us all sorts of things about the devil, not enough to satisfy our unhealthy curiosity, but all that we need to know. If we're going to actually keep going as followers of Jesus. We know that he's a powerful angel, angel who's implacably opposed to God. We know he's, he's not another God, in other words, he's a creature. It's not as if there is, there is good God and then there is the devil, you know, this massive, heavyweight battle, and ooh, who knows who's going to win. No, the devil is a creature that's fallen, a powerful creature, but a creature nonetheless. And he's on the he's on a leash. God is in control. The devil is not God. He's not, though, a figure of fun with a pointy tail. Ooh, the devil, he likes a bit of sex and chocolate. The kind of fun, advertising devil. That's not the devil of the Bible or the real devil. The real devil has more hatred than Hitler. He's more perverted than the worst paedophile. He's got more filth in him than the internet. He's more brutal than the worst torturer. He inflicts more misery than any war has ever done. He delights in lies. He loves lies. Rape, wonderful. Abuse, broken relationships, racial hatred, death. Loves it all, especially death. He's not a figure of fun. And the moment that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, you were marked with a cross, to God, that says you are forgiven, you are accepted, you are his child. But to the devil, that cross is a big target. And now he hates you and he wants to kill you. He is your enemy and he knows no mercy if you trust in Jesus. Okay, that's the identity of our enemy according to verse 11. What about his tactics? Well, again, verse 11 tells us, it talks about he has schemes. What are these schemes? Well, actually, his schemes, his tactics, they're consistent throughout the Bible. They don't change. They don't need to because they still work because we still fall for them. And you can see, I think there are two particularly helpful bits of the Bible in working out what what does it mean by the devil's schemes. So Genesis 3, which is the account of Adam and Eve and the fall, the first temptation, and then Job. Now, three things really emerge in Genesis 3 as Satan tries to tempt Adam and Eve to turn away from God. The first is he questions the word of God and causes Adam and Eve to doubt its reliability. He says, did God really say... And then when they quote what God said that you know, if you disobey Him, you'll die, they say, oh, he said, "Oh, you won't really die." Does it today? And we still fall for it. Fall for it. I'm sure the Bible doesn't really mean that. I'm sure that won't really happen. Secondly, he undermined the character of God and His generosity. He said, he tells Adam and Eve, "Look, the reason God said you can't eat the fruit is because God doesn't want you to become mature and mighty like He is. God's not good." That's why he's given you that law. He does the same today. We find ourselves believing the lie that God's rules are not for our blessing and protection. They're actually denying us things that are good and fun. And then thirdly, related to that, he tempts them to seek enjoyment and fulfillment through disobeying God rather than obeying him. That's what he does in Genesis 3. And he still uses the same tactics today and they still work. Now, the book of Job is slightly different. The book of Job um, is, uh, we're not given any historical context in the Bible. It just sort of stands alone. And the book of Job tells the story of a very good man, a man named Job, who obeys God, loves God, trusts God, and always does what is right. And Satan comes to God and says, uh, yeah, look, the thing with Job is his life is rather lovely. There's no way that he would honor you if his life was miserable. And God gives Satan permission to test Job. And he's struck with all sorts of physical afflictions. He loses everything, his family, his wealth, his physical health, everything. But here's the thing. That's not what Satan wants to do. That's just a means to an end. Satan doesn't win because Job's life sucks. Satan only wins if because Job is filled with suffering... He turns away from God. That's Satan's big aim. In one sense, he doesn't really care whether Job is rich or poor, healthy or sick, has a lovely family, or all of them are dead. Satan doesn't care. What he cares about is what will make Job curse God. That's the battle. Satan's aim is not to make you sick or put you in deep debt or to give you miserable relationships he's pleased by those things but only because they're a means to his end Satan's aim is that you would stop trusting in Jesus sometimes he seems to achieve that by using suffering to tempt you that God is miserable I mean how could God love you if your life looks like that and so Satan uses the sufferings of life to drive us away from God but at other times Satan is just as pleased to see that your bank account is full And your relationships are wonderful. And your opportunities for travel are endless. And and you're so busy with all the enjoyable things in this world that you just never quite have time for for God and commitment to his people. and, And you drift away. Satan is just as happy with that. It's the getting you away from God. That's what he cares about. The devil wants to hack through that cord of faith that ties you to God. And he'll do it whatever way he can. He wants you to lose confidence that God is good. He wants you to doubt that God's promises will come true. He wants you to disbelieve that God loves you. And he'll do anything to make that happen. These verses, Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, are a very sober warning for you and for me. They said, don't underestimate your enemy. If you do... You're going to be in all sorts of trouble. You're a fool if you don't take seriously the devil, given how powerful he is and how much he hates you. In 1939, as the Nazi Blitzkrieg came steamrolling through Europe into Poland, the Polish at one point opposed it by sending out against the tanks cavalry on horses with lances. They were annihilated. If you think that you, by your own power, your own strength, your own wit, your own cunning, your own moral goodness, can stand against Satan, you are a fool. You're a fool. Paul warns us here because he wants to wake us up out of complacency. Say, don't, don't fall asleep. Don't, don't fail to, to take notice of the dangers in front of you. He wants to wake us up, but he doesn't want to fill us with dread because he doesn't want you to run away in fear. He wants you to run to God because God is mightier than Satan. And having warned us of the reality of Satan, he now wants to tell us of the might of God so that you and I will be sober, alert, but not afraid. We have a deadly enemy, but we have no need to be afraid because we have the promise of God's strength and God's armor. Come back to to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Literally, it's receive his strength and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Now, he unpacks what this means in verses 13 to 18. Stand firm in his armor, he's won the victory. Look, before we get into what the armor is, it's worth asking what does it look like to fight in this spiritual war? What does it mean to to fight? Because, frankly, there are all sorts of weird and far from wonderful books and talks and speakers out there doing the rounds telling you all sorts of things that owe a lot more to Buffy the Vampire Slayer than the Bible. And I'm sorry, but there's an awful lot of nonsense out there. So what is it? What does it mean to be faithful in this spiritual war? Well, to fight means to stand. You can see that. Look at verse 11. Stand your ground, verse 13. Stand your ground, stand, verse 13. Stand firm, verse 14. Again and again, the emphasis in this passage is stand. Far, far too much supposedly Christian teaching uh, on spiritual warfare is all about how we disarm the devil and claim the territory and defeat demons through strategic prayer or whatever. But the Bible is clear. It is Jesus who wins the victory, not us. Our role is to cheer his victory and stand his ground. One John 3:8 doesn't say the reason the Son of God appeared was to teach us how to destroy the devil's work. It says, "The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work himself." Colossians 2:15 makes this abundantly clear. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So the David and Goliath point, you probably know the Old Testament story of David and Goliath. So you've got all the Israelite soldiers and the Philistine army and the massive giant Goliath. And Goliath terrifies them and Goliath can beat any of them and Goliath offers them individual combat. Any of you can fight me. If I kill them, I take everybody. And they're all terrified. But then David steps forward and David kills Goliath. When it comes to spiritual warfare, you and I are not David. David is, as the Bible makes clear, he points towards Jesus. It's Jesus who defeats the devil by dying on the cross and paying for our sin. You and I, we're the Israelite soldiers, the ones with the shaking knees at the back. We our job is just to stand, not to run away, and to cheer when Jesus wins. That's what it means. It was brought home to me uh, when I was working for a church in a very rough area, um, a neighborhood on the edge of Buenos Aires in Argentina. And there was a lot of occult and witchcraft in, in that kind of area. And there was a guy um, who I met who started coming along to church. And he was, his, his whole body was covered in tattoos and scars. And he had hair down to his waist and a massive tattoo across his forehead that read in English, skinhead, um, which was uh, mildly ironic. But... Um, but there we go. He couldn't speak English, so he was all right. Um, but uh, he, um, he was a pretty bad character, but he started coming along to church and eventually he decided he wanted to put his trust in Jesus. But he, I remember he sat down with the pastor and his question was very simple. He said, is Jesus stronger than Satan? Because the devil is going to be seriously unhappy because I've been doing all sorts for him for a very long time. That was absolutely right. Absolutely right. The question is not, will I be strong enough? It's, is Jesus strong enough? is Jesus strong enough? And the answer was given when Jesus defeated death on the cross. A guy who can die and rise again is a guy you can trust. A guy who can take on the sins of the world, the sins that you and I have committed, and absorb them, and take God's punishment, and then come back to life, is a guy you can trust to keep you safe. That's the point. The job... Savior of the world, defeater of Satan, it's already taken. It's not up for us. To stand is what we're called to do. Not to give up whatever comes. Not to be tempted to desert by the pleasures of the world. And not to give in and run away in fear because of the dangers we face and the disappointments and struggles. But to keep trusting. Jesus fights, we stand. Victory is perseverance in the Christian life. It's that simple. Okay, what is the evil day, though, that he mentions in verse 13? To take, make your stand on the evil day, the day of evil. I think it refers to two time periods. First, it's just, look, the current age, the devil's active. It looks different in different parts of the world. There's not so much over witchcraft in this country because actually, people having no belief in the spiritual realm serves the devil much better than over witchcraft going on but he's active he's active everywhere but secondly i think there is a narrower sense in that for all of us there comes a time or times when we face particular attack i guess those of us who've been christians for a while will know that to be true there are times when the battle to keep trusting jesus is particularly intense those are the times when our faith is tested those are the times when we want to give in those are the times when it's very hard to stand. Those are the times when medals are earned. The evil day. And the armor that we're told about at the end of this passage is designed to enable us to stand on that day. It picks up on the cultural imagery of the heavily armored Roman soldier, together with Old Testament imagery of God the warrior, the one who protects and fights for his people, particularly Isaiah 59 Verses 16 to 17, our King who fights and protects us. Let's look at verse 14, see what's going on. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is... The Word of God. In summary, it's trust Jesus. That's what it's really talking about. It's the gospel. It's not some weird kind of uh, dungeons and dragons type thing. It's just look, trust Jesus, but understand that as you do so, you're, you're involved in a great battle, a battle of faith. Firstly, it's the Belt of Truth, the Belt of Truth, verse 14. The devil deals in lies. Lies are his weapons. And so we need to ground ourselves in God's truth and to be, have his truth wrapped around us. God's truth is your only defense against lies. Believe his truth. Speak his truth. Share it with one another. Pray it through. Then is the, the breastplate of righteousness Now there's two ways you can understand righteousness here. So righteousness can mean um, our eternal life is protected by the righteousness of Christ. That is on the the cross, Jesus gives us his righteous status and takes our sin upon himself and deals with it. That righteousness that he's given to us that means on the last day, Satan cannot accuse you of sin and say they do not deserve to be in heaven. No, because we have Christ's righteousness protecting us. I think it also means uh, the righteousness of of a life that's lived righteously. The merging of God's righteous status and a righteous life. It means there's no gaps for Satan to penetrate. It's often pointed out there is no armor for your back in the Christian armory. We are to stand, not to run. Then we get uh, shoes of gospel readiness. With your feet fitted, verse 15, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Three things to note. Firstly, to stand doesn't, it obviously isn't to be taken overly literalistically. To stand involves going out and telling other people about Jesus. That's what it means to have shoes of the gospel. Secondly, in a paragraph on spiritual warfare, note the reminder the gospel is the gospel of peace. The true gospel brings peace between man and God, and it must also bring peace between humans. If it's not doing that, it's not the true gospel. And thirdly, and I think most interestingly here, This is a description of spiritual armor that protects you. So why is he talking about evangelism, about telling other people about Jesus? It must, must therefore mean that to fail to be evangelistically active, to not be actively seeking to tell other people about Jesus leaves you spiritually vulnerable. It's very striking. Then we have the shield of faith. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Ultimately, whether whether we fall for the devil's temptations, accusations, insinuations, doubts, and fears, whether we fall for them or not really boils down to whether we believe God or not. To raise the shield of faith is to believe God's promises. That's all it means. To believe God's promise. His promise that if you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. His promise that it is worth the sacrifices to love and serve other people for God's heavenly reward. His promise that he will keep you fast. He will protect you. The shield of faith. Then the helmet of salvation, appropriately the head where a fatal wound could be received is protected by God's salvation. And the salvation, it literally says receive, not take, but receive. It's passive, Salvation is something that God gives you as a free gift, as we've seen throughout Ephesians. And then finally we get um, verse 17. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The one offensive weapon in the arsenal. Now Jesus shows, uh, what what do you mean? How is the, the Bible an offensive weapon? How do you wield the sword of the Spirit? Jesus shows us in his temptations in Matthew 4. Unlike Adam in the garden, Jesus in the wilderness when, when he's tempted by the devil responds with the words of God. God's truth to destroy the devil's lies. And look if you and I do not study and learn scripture then we march into battle with no weapon. Without a sword. Every day we go out into the world and we face the devil's lies. Lies that come from out there and often from in here in my own heart let's be honest. But the The sad truth is that many of us Christians, we think that learning verses in the Bible is just a little a bit keen and extra. And so we read the Bible in church and we ignore it when we're out in the world and we have no scripture in our memories. And so we go out unarmed. Get the sword in your hand, get fighting, is what Paul tells us to do. What gospel truths do you most struggle to believe? What sins do you most struggle to resist? Learn verses that kill them, that counter them, that help you trust God. And not just the things that help you, but what about your friends, your Christian brothers and sisters who you love? Where are they struggling? Well, learn the verses that you can pray for them too. Cut through lies with God's truth. Fight for each other. Now, look, putting on the armor that he's described here is not some mechanical process. Every morning you have to sort of concentrate, uh, Lord, help me uh, put on the breastplate and the helmet. And if you forget something, you know, you're distracted by, uh, by your alarm, then, oh, okay, you go out unprotected in one bit of you that day. It's not like that. There's nothing mechanical or weird or, or mystical about it. It's, the armor is gospel armor. It's salvation, righteousness, truth, evangelism. And so he's saying, look, you put on the armor as you seek each day to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and your understanding of his salvation. The more that you understand and live that out, that, that is what it means. You're protected as you do that. Each day grow. Which brings us to prayer, verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Prayer in the spirit is prayer guided by the sword of the spirit, the word of God. We'll think more about it next week, but it's no wonder that a whole section on the the spiritual war that we're in ends with prayer, which is basically crying out to God for help. When you know you've got a serious opponent like Satan, when you know how sinful your heart is, then you want to pray to God for his help. We face a fight that we cannot win on our own, but that God cannot lose. And so wonderfully, we... By faith, lay hold of the armor he gives us and pray to him for his help. Okay, what difference should this all make um, to our lives tomorrow? Well, firstly, uh, expect it to be a battle. Expect it to be a battle. The old hymn books were full of battle imagery. Onward, Christian soldiers. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Now, there is a good reason we're a little bit more nervous about the language of religious warfare these days. It's been so... We're we're far too aware that some people use language of warfare for very, very wicked reasons. But that's never what it meant in the Christian hymn books or in the Bible. And we lose something very important if we lose sight of that battle language. You see, if all of our songs are songs of triumph and grace and love, it's wonderful and it's true, but it's not the whole truth. And we'll be unprepared for the reality All the things we've been learning in Ephesians have built up to this point, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. All the stuff about honoring God in the way that we treat our families and the way we work is built towards this. All the stuff about uh, turning away from uh, racism and the sins of of the way that humans look at each other differently and other one another, it builds towards this. In other words, Paul is saying, you will only be able to obey what the Bible teaches in these areas. If you fight hard, it doesn't come easily. And I guess we all know that. It's gonna be a battle. It's gonna be a struggle. But it's a struggle Jesus has ultimately won in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And it's a struggle that Jesus strengthens you for each day. And so it's a struggle worth getting involved in. Be ready for it. Now let me apply this to a particular area, which is to sin, uh, when we think about the, the battle with the sinful desires in our own hearts, the most common way that the New Testament talks about sin is not actually acts, individual acts that cause me guilt and shame. Though That's, of course, true. It talks about sin actually more often as a, as a power that seeks to dominate and destroy and enslave, like Romans 6. And so seeking to grow in godliness, seeking to turn away from the sins that, uh, that pollute my heart and that wreck my relationships don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect sin to give up without a fight. It's going to be difficult. It's going to require battle. And I guess lastly, for for those who are looking into the Christian life, who um, perhaps came along this week, know what you're signing up for. Christianity is not just a humanist way of, another humanist option of how to live. There is a spiritual reality. God is real. And the Bible makes no apology for the fact that it talks about spiritual realms. But it also talks about spiritual realms as a place of conflict. To become a Christian puts you at peace with God, but it brings you into conflict with the devil. And you need to know what you sign up for. But you also need to know that the Jesus who died to pay for your sins is the Jesus who rose again the Jesus who reigns and the Jesus who wins. You have everything you need for this battle. And so Paul tells us, wake up from cruise ship Christianity and get involved. Stop stop acting as if life life is just a laid back easy thing. You're never gonna stand while you're living in cruise ship Christianity. Be prepared, you have a serious enemy. Put on the armor of God so that you can stand. Get praying get fighting, and help one another. Let's pray. Father God, for some of us it's just weird to to hear any of this stuff about spiritual things. It just is so alien to us. We pray that you would help us to, uh, to see the reality of the world that we live in. That it is a world where there is real evil as well as good. And we pray that we would not be naive or foolish about the the realities of the universe. Father, we pray for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, that you uh, you would help us not to be blasé or foolish. We would recognize that we are in a fight, that we have an enemy. And so we pray that we would take things seriously. Our Father, thank you, though, that whether or not we come through this battle is not down to our bravery or our skill. For the Lord Jesus has won the victory against the devil. And the Lord Jesus has provided us with all the armor we need to protect us. And so we pray that you would help us to trust him, that we would not be fearful, but that we would be confident that in him we can stand. For your glory's sake, amen.